Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and being accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, please contact Buoyancy Digital at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R. Media on LinkedIn. Anyway, it is my pleasure to introduce our guest today. This is a, a return favor for me. Um, our guest today is Neil Gernhill, who's founder and CEO of Node International and Cyberman 365. Uh, he previously did investor relations for Node Capital. He spent some time as head of European Cyber Risk and Technology Insurance, where he operated a program called Safe Online, a leading firm of Lloyd's Insurance Brokers. And the return favor here is that back in September, roughly about the same time that you called Jethro, Neil reached out to do a podcast about raising cyberethical kids, uh, which was the kind of first media drop for that book. So it's a pleasure to have Neil here and uh, continue our conversation. Yeah, awesome, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. It's uh, a pleasure to return the, the favor. I'm excited uh, about being on the podcast today and uh, being asked the questions and not asking the questions. So uh, hopefully we can have a <laughs> fruitful uh, discussion. And I think since we last spoke, you've dropped even more books. I'm, I'm pleased to say that in the wake of raising cyberethical kids, I did get Cybertraps for Educators 2.0 out which has been a core part of the mission that Jethro and I are working on. And it's, you know, it's really fascinating. We're starting to see that spin out in some interesting ways. And, you know, who knows? We'll, we'll see where it goes. But um, I think what's really cool about this conversation is that so much of what Jethro and I deal with is in the realm of cyber risk and what individuals and organizations can do to minimize those risks, you know, insure against them, better protect themselves. So if you're willing, uh, why don't you walk us through your career a little bit? Whenever I see Lloyd's of London, that's that's always a good place to start. Kind of a fascinating ancient organization. So uh, fill us in. Absolutely. I mean, no, a pleasure. Um, so, so I date back. So when I first left college, I was transitioning to learning about IT. We were developing websites, large, very clunky, kind of just the time that the, the internet or more the search engines were 
were really starting to um, gain momentum. And a lot of retailers were learning about e-commerce uh, and transitioning into the e-commerce platform. Um, so I was very lucky to see the, the rise and the momentum really increase around that space. And I was part of a, a largest organization that was involved in helping people transition. Uh, and things were going along swimmingly, and then websites started to get hacked. And we used to work with our group of developers where we would sit in a, a meeting room and they would say, we're unhackable, uh, and they were wrong. And um, subsequently, websites that we developed and were told were unhackable were hacked. Those days, which would probably be around probably like 2000, the responses were slow. It was very disruptive. It was more like a SQL injection. But as soon as that happened, the actual e-commerce platforms, it was flagged that they had malware on the systems. The webmaster console and the search engine would just de-index them like a like a bad habit, just drop them as, as they should do. And then we had to write a re-inclusion letter to the search engines to say why it'll never happen again, how we corrected it. And then about three weeks later, these websites will be re-indexed and it would either happen again or uh, unfortunately the business that was then out of the search engines due to this incident had a, a real big situation because they had no income because they were so reliant on the organic listings of search engines. Uh, so around that time, I kind of thought, well, this is crazy because we would meet with the business owner and their insurance broker. And back then, uh, uh, the insurance broker would say it's non-tangible, it's non-insurable. But for somebody who's been involved in building these applications from the ground up, we knew exactly what they were worth uh, and the impact that it had on a business. And therefore, I thought, well, I'm going to set up an insurance company. Um, and that's what I did. And I set up a, a small insurance company that was called Website Insurance, um, which cleverly sold insurance to websites. Uh, and that was semi-successful. Um, but at the time, I knew nothing about insurance. Um, I was completely coming at it from a technology angle. And luckily for me, there was other people within London, in Lloyd's of London, that were already thinking about this also. And in in America, it, it was a little bit more of a mature market. Um, so I was very lucky that at that point, I grew the, the little brokerage that I'd started, but then I sold that to a, uh, a London-based firm that was heavily linked to Lloyd's of London. And then I transitioned into that and uh, was lucky then to, to really um, sort of build a, a career in and around the, the London insurance market that is... Uh, that is old by tradition, but but thankfully very modern in a lot of the risks and specialist risks it takes on. And then I founded and set up Node uh, about four years ago, uh, mainly because there was a lot of shift in the, the cyber market. And we really wanted to move into two areas, staying one within the corporate cyber world and, and adding more infosec services and provisions to insured's day-to-day well-being, but also move into the personal lines cyber arena. I, I saw that the digital risks that were facing corporations, albeit very different, that they, they were impacting people's lives. And when you took a traditional family, if there is such a thing, the, the landscape was, was affecting different people in different ways. And it was becoming harder and harder for parents um, to fully understand the risk, fully keep 
hands on the risk, fully know how to react when there's a situation, not to put fuel onto the fire in a situation, which is very easy to do and not feel helpless. And that was one of the, the reasons and, and kind of the core reasons that we set up um, our most recent product, which is the Sideman 365 product um, that we're running with today. That's interesting. I love these origin stories. I mean, that's one of the things that really draws me to this work. And, you know, for starters, congratulations on having the foresight to see that this would be such a growth industry. You know, it's always a good reminder for people that even though the threat of cybersecurity is not tangible per se, the impact absolutely is in terms of lost profits, in terms of uh, financial identity theft in terms of ruined credit, what have you, and of course, actual theft of money. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in before we move on to some of the specifics is that being said, you know, I remember the delisting you know, phenomena that would occur with Alta Vista and with uh, you know early Google and so on and so forth. When you were setting up this insurance business, how were you assessing risk? I mean, given the the proto nature of the internet and the challenges i mean that even today 20 years later you know getting our hands around cyber threats is incredibly difficult so how do you balance that yeah it's a great great question i think not only is it challenging it's ever moving as well so we've certainly seen over the years if we're, if we're going back to when um, we first started out looking at cyber risk it was really there was it was really around first party cost mainly bi was that so business interruption the event that you're trading one day a cyber event happens and you're no longer able to trade there's a natural uh stop start of business like a very similar to a was a tangible risk you know if, if if someone shop burns down then they're unable to trade it's a very similar concept so that was more familiar to the insurance market and that was very easy to manage and back then the regulatory landscape was very relaxed when it came to mishandling um, of consumer information data um, credit card information i mean there there was there was nothing in regards to regulatory frameworks that you had to notify or adhere to they were only just really finding their feet so what that meant was that the business owners were very relaxed probably on on their understanding of the impact of an event of a cyber peril if they were to become a victim they didn't hear about it too often and also if they if they did then they they were only cared about getting back up and running um, and it it would really in many cases was a sort of a dump and replace um, just simply dump the server back up to last week go back up uh, and, away, and away you go. Now, moving forward through the sort of the revolution that we've all been privy to and we, we've all seen and, and been involved in, in in some way, shape or form, that the reliance on the interconnected world and the digital data across all businesses now, regardless of industry class, has, has just continued to get more and more and more. So they're more reliant and they're more susceptible which has meant when we're looking at digital risk and the impacts when we're underwriting digital risk, we've had to embrace the different ways that they can be fall victim, embrace the different ways that it impacts them, uh, embrace the different ways that they interconnect when it, we think about systemic digital loss. Very rarely do you find a 
a server at the end of a hall like you used to. Um, very, very rarely do you have sort of rack servers that are internal. Everything's moved into the cloud. So then the, the risk of interruption moves away from the controls of the insured and somewhat to a third party. So it's been tremendously challenging, both looking at different ways to assess digital risk. The regulatory framework has changed GDPR, the Information Commissioner Office, certainly within America, the different privacy laws that come up and down and, and change. And that regulatory framework for businesses is, is terribly uh, confusing. And now with the increase of criminal activity moving away from the, the old style of sort of financial gain, it's far easier now as hacking's become easier. It's far easier now to download toolkits to hack. So the the organized criminals have moved in and the complex of hacking has got easier, which has now brought about an unprecedented level of cybercrime across both corporate and consumer. Well, and, and I think that's a good place to transition from the corporate to the consumer. I've often thought that um, I like this kind of insurance would be like a vanity thing, like to make sure nobody says anything bad about me online or, or something like that. But as we've heard about on our previous interviews, there's, there's a lot more at stake than just somebody saying something nasty about you. So how is this important enough that even normal people who are not like celebrities on the internet, that they should be thinking about this kind of stuff? Yeah, I think, um, so certainly from our standpoint, when we're thinking about insurance, that's only one part of the solution that, that we offer. I think we think about digital well-being of a, of a family, and that spans from um, home network protection. So we provide devices that are able to be downloaded to um, internal devices to secure and harden the external network. We look at advice, training, and support in the event that they, their children or, or there's something happened in a digital format where we're able to assist and support them. And the insurance piece actually is only linked really to financial loss. It's only, only lost to either legal support or financial loss that has happened through some sort of identity identity event. Most of what we do is around proactive services um, to try and prevent you falling victim or if your credentials are compromised, we alert you versus uh, you having to kind of stumble upon it or someone taking advantage of you or your loved one's um, digital uh, identity. That That's the mainstay in what we're looking at at the moment. Um, and lots of things fascinate me around that space but certainly when you think about the i'm not a celebrity it won't happen to me actually the opposite you're more likely because it's a numbers game um there's more people at your demographic it, it's rare that the bad guy i think it's a myth that bad guys they, they certainly do and and they, and they do focus on on individuals in certain circumstances but when you think about the the most common events that we see it's more scam related and scams start with very broad nets that go down and down and down based on certain snippets of events that that dial in on the average person and that really is um what we're about really yeah and i and i think the thing to take away from that is that it's not about you being targeted 
it's about you being caught in the net. And that's a good way to think about it. Um, that if you think about it as you're being, there's a net out there. And if something is wrong, you're going to hook onto that net and be carried along with it. And you may not have any idea that that happens. I mean, when we talked with Tony a while ago, he said that I, you should you know, freeze your kid's credit report because they could have their personal information divulged. And then 10 years later, when they go to get a driver's license, there's already been somebody who's had their driver's license suspended and revoked and rein, reinstated before they even had a chance to, to start doing that. Or maybe not reinstated, actually. That too. I was just adding that in for being funny. That's such a true point. That So really, when we think about identity of, of somebody's family, our concept is really simple. We have historically relied on organizations, governments, regulatory frameworks, financial institutions, privacy directives to keep our identity or our, our family's identity safe. And frankly, it just isn't working. There's compromises every day that are now publicized. There's um, breaches through very large in- institutions. There's incidents on incidences. So our advice or, or, or our position is don't rely on other people. Take responsibility for your own family and your own digital well-being and protection because people think that either corporations that or social networks that don't charge any money, um, you are the product. With other uh, territories and, and organizations, it's very common for your information to be com- compromised or lost, so you become the victim. Um, so, yeah, that's really what we think about is, you know, we, we think there has to be a shift in people thinking that other people are controlling their their digital identity and doing the right thing, right? They need to take some sort of responsibility. Well, actually, this I, I have to say, Neil, this is such a perfect lead-in for next week because our show on Monday is about the concept of digital hygiene nice. and making sure that your electronic house is in order. And one of the reasons that Jethro and I planned that session for Monday is next Thursday's interview release is a guy named Brandon Karp who does cybersecurity for the U.S. Navy. Awesome. And one of the points he makes is that cybersecurity is something that we all have responsibility for, that obviously we need to protect ourselves, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the cybersecurity we employ is actually helping at a broader societal level. Um, Let me ask you this one question, because I think it would be really useful for people. We're you know, we're assuming that the bulk of our audience is not a celebrity like Kim Kardashian who gets in trouble because she puts Instagram photos of her jewels up and, you know, gets robbed in Paris. Kim, if you're listening, that's great. But um, <laughs> my more significant call out would be what are the kinds of cybersecurity threats that parents or homeowners or individuals should be aware of? What When you talk about that broad net, what do you mean in practical terms? What are the categories of things people should be paying attention to? I, th- I think so. So one of the, the big things that we see is events targeting certain individuals um, from, from a demographic of an age standpoint. That could be a veteran. That could be somebody of uh, a, a slightly older generation um, that still has keys to the kingdom. Um, that could be taking phone calls. Um, a lot of the scams that we see are, are predicated on very easy, what you think would be 
low-level uh, events. They're just quite sophisticated in the way that they construct their email or their their insights. So I think that the the biggest the biggest thing that that we have certainly picked up on is more around the ability to try and convince somebody that somebody is a financial institution, either uh, a, a bank or the person who they're getting the correspondence from is within their family, either a, uh, a sibling or a, a grandchild or something of that nature. That's We've certainly seen a hell of a lot of events and it, it really is a staggering, I, I would love to see the numbers that these guys start with when they deploy this type of attack. But I'm envisioning it's a millions and millions of emails and it only takes that one and it only takes that that um, slight interaction. And we've seen it actually that once they get one, once they convince somebody to do a small task, they go back for more and more. Can you wire me X money? Um, we've had a lot of instances as well where they've received a note saying, this is a note from your financial advisor do x and they presume that it's um wrong so it's it's more about the uh, the, the the dual factor element of checking something in, in in every scam in fairness that we see starts and finishes with they think that the perpetrator is coming from an authoritative position we had a scam mm-hmm. recently where it was a positive uh interaction in the sense that they rang them to say that they transferred money into their account and they had um, but the, when the person logged into their account, they saw that there was more money in there than they should have been. So instantly, the dynamic of theft is is different because you would presume a criminal wouldn't put money into your account. They would only remove money from your account. Um, and the second that they they did that, the um, person was hooked. They 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 instantly like the guard was down. So I think all of those things are not not to make everybody paranoid, but certainly to think that. Are they talking to who they think they're talking to? Um, maybe, maybe double checking or triple checking would be most most of what we see as scam. Outside of that, um, the the other element that we get or we see a lot of is more around the the social side of the internet can be very bad. And um, when it comes to younger people doing things behind closed doors, um, and when it goes wrong, and parents that necessarily aren't hundred percent. Even if you are hundred percent up on the social um, platforms and what they're using and how they're using it, it's terribly difficult to know how to have a positive impact on uh, a particular event that's gone bad. So we 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 see that type of thing a lot. Mm. That's interesting. I I don't know if we talked about this during the previous podcast you and I did, but uh, I do some computer forensics and digital investigation work occasionally. And I got called in on a case of an older woman whose family discovered that she had shipped off over $100,000 to one of these scam artists um, that I don't, I didn't get deeply enough into the case to get the full panoply effects. But basically, it started out with niece in danger in yeah. some South so American common. country. And a series of emails followed and, and they were so good. Their, their social engineering techniques were so well honed mm. that by the time somebody realized something was wrong, you know, a large amount of money had disappeared. Yeah. And that, 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 that I would say what, what most people have to be aware of that they're um, it's very easy to be digitally duped and 
the sophistication as you as you said is is so high even with our ransomware events on our corporate side it's the, the sophistication um, and level of conversation you have with the perpetrators it's 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 nearly comical in the sense that it's a it's a and it's exchange it's a conversation they even say please and thank you and uh, uh it, just to let you know if you don't settle the ransom in the next two days the ransom will be doubling thank you um thank you for your pay you know <laughs> so like polite <laughs> yeah yeah like it, it is like i am having an exchange with you um yeah it's 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 bizarre and i think that's shifted so much with 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 so much around the cybersecurity, it's more the the complacency and the just even the professional professionalism, if there is such a thing in the way these things are transacted, makes them so hard um, or so easy to fall victim to them. Um, you know, it, it happens. It could happen a hundred times a day. You've only got a, that one of you know. You've got to fall for it and. And that's all they need. Well, and and that piece right there that's so important to pay attention to is that you, the, I I can't remember who said it, but you have to be perfect 100% of the time. The scammers, the hackers, they only have to be perfect one time and get it done once. And that's, and that's really tragic. And in fact, that situation with the grandchild um, being in danger actually happened with me. And I was traveling a lot at the time. And my grandma, um, I just happened to call her one day and she said, Jethro, I got the weirdest phone call the other day or email or something. I don't remember now. I got the weirdest communication that you were in Costa Rica and you were, um, you know, something was going on with you and I need to send all this money to get you out. And so thankfully my grandma, uh, who uh, is no longer with us, but she was super bright, even in her old age. And she called my mom and said, is Jethro out of the country? <laughs> and my mom said, I don't think so. He's in Alaska, which is kind of out of the country. But, mm-hmm. um, but that was, you know, that she thankfully didn't do anything, didn't uh, connect with them further and said, ah, this sounds fishy. I think Jethro would, wouldn't reach out to me. He'd reach out to his mom or his, the rest of his family. And she like did some critical thinking to know that that was not, something that she that she needed to to be worried about so thankfully she got out of that scam um but you know that person whoever was doing it uh missed out on that one but i'm sure found somebody else um at some point to scam for something else and um you know one of the challenges i've seen is my bank for example they call me if i charge something that's not typical and then um for the first when i switch banks to this new bank I, right. I didn't answer the call numerous times because it wasn't a number I knew. I got the message saying this is what it was. And it makes it hard for people who are doing the right thing to do the right thing because we don't have trust because it's so easy to be duped. What What's your advice or thoughts on that? Yeah, it's really interesting is my first comment on that. I, I'm I'm fascinated with the levels that, that we see both our on our corporate side, we see a lot of financial cybercrime on our on our um, cyber in our corporate lines of business, and it's very interesting when you look at banks, like you were just talking about, how they catch because it's going to Nigeria. Like, why are you sending a million dollars to to Nigeria? Like, you know, that's very out of. But they don't all catch it, and we've had hundreds of thousands of dollars um, that we've 
had to pay insurance on and we cover that because that's what we're there to do for the insured um but the level uh that that is happening is is very challenging i think for banks and and financial institutions and us as users of those institutions to fully trust them so every i think everybody's got to got to realize the challenges on both parties and you think of the scale that a bank has to deal with with this complexity of this problem of how many of their customers are traveling and they've they've got to flag it and it's probably part algorithmic and, and part human so i think that i think you have to really pay close attention to your bank your financial procedures certainly on the accounts that you use often um, to make sure that you're comfortable with what they do and what's standard for them and um, how they how they interact with you but ultimately i think you also can't get frustrated with them if they keep freezing your account or because they are doing it out of the the goodness in a way of their financial loss and your financial loss and i think only when you're on our side of the fence do you realize just how bad the landscape is for cyber crime is i mean i have never known a landscape in in our world, in the cyber insurance world like it. Um, the biggest two crimes then now that we are currently insuring are cybercrime um, and, and ransomware events, both money going straight to the um, hackers' um, pockets. So it's easy money for them. It's very easy to uh, manipulate. And it ta- it's an interesting point that in the, in the good old days of um, hacking, it was very much a disruptive, dis- deface, try and compromise, try and very visually, you knew SQL injections. It was obvious that the site would implode or um, your systems would sort of frazzle. Now, and I think it's the same with the consumer, that they actually the perpetrator is trying not to raise attention. So we have events that transpire um, when a social engineering event has occurred in a corporate environment and the perpetrator has been there for about six months just sitting there just watching whereas before the second they're in you knew like they would start deleting or downloading or exporting whereas now it's 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 very different they're there to to just sit and they'll just watch transactions of money they'll watch invoices moving across and then they'll know um, where the soft un- underbelly is. And they will then usually, and most commonly at the moment now, is invoice manipulation. So they will compromise an invoice that you are familiar to seeing. And then that's it. They've, they've got you. And the same with the consumer. And that's why it's so difficult. They, they, their job is reversed now. It's not disruptive. Um, it's the opposite. It's to blend in. It's um, like the the old pickpocketer. It's it's the ability, and I think that's what makes it so challenging for the consumer, um, and also for the merchants that are dealing in the in the currencies when it comes to banking. So, yeah, it's a fascinating point. Well, this yeah, this stuff I I do find absolutely riveting, to be honest with you, Neil. And it does make me wonder how Oliver Twist would have played out in a modern digital age with a, with a contactless cards machine. Yeah, Fagan <laughs> would have loved that technology. So, so just to give a shout out to the old to the old hackers, right? I'm old enough to remember that that hacking when it got started was really designed to 
sneak into a system to figure out how it worked and it was not a malevolent activity and then obviously that changed and and now i think you're mm. absolutely right that that the idea of kind of surreptitiously watching what's going on and gathering information a la solar winds for instance is is much yeah. much more common technique so the thing i wanted to pick up on from a cybersecurity point of view that you mentioned earlier is basically the kitty scripts that are out there now it seems to me that we've got a bifurcation if you will of of this hacking phenomenon where it can just as easily be a bunch of 12 and 14 year olds as it can a nation state you know there there are rumors i've seen that basically a good chunk of north korea's operating budget comes from hacking <laughs> exploits of one kind or another i have no I have no data on that, but it's an interesting idea. So I guess my question for you then is, you know, where do you see the bigger of the two problems? The fact that we're getting decentralized hacking tools or the power of the state coming at institutions? I think that in our investigations, most of the crimes committed a lot of them stem back to organized criminals. So I think, I think when it comes to in the, the types of day-to-day -day hacks that we see so for financial gain, I think most of them come from organized crime that have moved away from, they've realized that it's easier to transact in Bitcoins. It's a little bit safer. Um, they can do it further away and they've moved into that environment. And for that, I think it's a different frequency level compared to nation state attacks and such like. I think they're very different as well. In our world, particularly, we, we don't operate in the kind of the, the nation state kind of attacks. Ours is, is more the um, criminal organization that very easily obtain the tools. And for us, as you mentioned, that's the worst area to which we we now see where it's very easy to there's actually more money in, in probably in some regard and it, where you see the real sophisticated developers that used to do the hacking now build tools that make it readily available for anybody to pick up um, and acquire a very little cost i mean the the toolkits you can buy that that we've seen through our forensic teams are you know they're they're very cheap they come with instructions shoot point frequency how many um what to do um help desk if you get that's stuck. terrifying so i think that yeah it, 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 it is and so I, th I think that's the the fear that it's nearly gone open source and when you think about how these open source platforms spread i think that's certainly our focus when we think about how we um protect both our corporate insureds and our um citizens insured sort of a, our, our personal um, families we we think more about the the criminal activity than we do the kind of the the nations and the competing um, countries and we know what they're trying to do and the frequencies that they're trying to act upon so this brings up an interesting question do you you're not in law enforcement you're in insurance and so part of what you want to do certainly is stop criminals who are doing this so that you don't have to pay out money right but the other part right. of it is do you do you know who is committing these crimes? And then the second piece that ties into that, um, we had Tony Anscombe on the on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he said that uh, paying ransom in a ransomware situation 
should be should be illegal because it's directly funding uh, cybercrime. So yeah. one, do you can you always find out who perpetrated the act? Um, and two, what's your stance on paying ransomware? Yeah, re- real uh, a real strong question, a real um, hot topic at the minute in our world, and I certainly can't speak for for Lloyd's of London or the insurance industry as a whole. We are, uh, I'm purely my opinion. We are not by any means the largest cyber market carrier, and we're 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 one of the we're one of the newer ones. And um, so other people have a lot a lot bigger books of business, but we certainly see a lot of activity within the cyber ransomware space. So my the the current position to which we um, operate in is that nobody wants to pay a ransom nobody wants to pay money to criminals where we only pay is insurance is there for the ability to keep a business in business outside of its own balance sheet if the absolute worst scenario happens so we accept that in this case as a cyber insurance market that regardless of the cyber event if we're happy on taking that risk, then we're happy to settle and pay. Um, but if there is a slight miscon, sort of, uh, I think often publicized, is that the the ability to settle a ransom would only happen in the absolute last circumstances where everything else has failed. So all backups haven't worked. Um, there's a leverage put against the business where the frequency where there's if it's healthcare, there's people's lives at risk. Um, it's it's not done lightly, but it does happen. Is my my sort of first point. And certainly when we're and when 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 we first started this conversation, I think Fred, you you mentioned like how have we evolved as as underwriting digital risk because the risk has transcended. And over the last eighteen months, ransomware has increased by over sort of 200, 220%. It's incredible how much ransomware we're seeing that's affecting our insureds. So now what the underwriting process has adapted and changed where we as an underwriting agency and a lot of other underwriting agencies, we're now asking a lot of questions about the insured's ability to handle, respond and react what are their backup frequencies? How often are they tested? What are their sort of endpoint protections? All those sort of things. So my my first answer to your question is that that yes, we do everything we can to not pay the ransom um, and get the insured back up and running. But there is an interesting point that in the event that we do have to pay a ransom, currently it is illegal. I believe it's federally illegal to settle or pay a ransom if that organized organization. Um, or hacking group is known or listed on uh, as a criminal known entity, then you're right. Um, there, There is a declaration where you would be breaking the law because effectively you're funding criminal activity. Um, but if they're not known, it is our understanding that you are able then um, to to pay um, the ransom. But I will, I will say that it's a very hot topic in our world at the moment. Um, and there's a lot of change coming across the market with different insurers taking different stances on this position. I don't think we're going to remain in the current state that we are. 
Um, and I think what what happens, and this is what happened with social engineering, and it's happening with ransomware. It's a real good trend in all types of scams and financial games that there's there's always a start, there's always an advantage, and there's always a close. There's always an ebb, there's a flow, then there's a stop, like a boom bust type, like the, the like an industry revolution. Like Steam was great, then Steam wasn't great, then now Steam's rubbish. There's the combustion engine, and 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 our scams and cyber crimes across all industries uh, and all classes go the same way where for now like sending the um receiving the email from the prince of somewhere saying that he wants to transfer you 10 million dollars that happened for a short space of time so like with this this event what 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 will happen is insureds become more resistant to it the, the resolution steps up insurance carriers have we're now paying lots of money out to it, but now we're looking at how we can stop it from happening going forward. We're wiser to it, and hopefully then it'll, it'll start to decline, and then there'll be something else that comes around the corner, um, and then we have to pick up that baton and try um, to, to, to protect it. And that, that I find that most interesting about scams and events where it that's that's actually, I think, a really, really good point, Neil. I, I mean, I'm vaguely nostalgic for the Nigerian prince emails. <laughs> some of them were wildly funny. I always thought there could be just a great SNL sketch reading some of those letters that get posted. But, you know, a couple of things that I think are worth noting, and, and then I wanted to kind of look to the future to wrap this up. But, but in terms of... Um, you know, the resiliency, right, of the businesses that you're dealing with. Obviously, part of your insurance measurement now is what steps have, right. have businesses yeah. taken to be able to get back up without an expenditure of cash for ransomware and so forth. And I think it's really important to remind parents and individuals that they need that same mm -hmm. kind of resiliency for the work that they do and, and the records that they keep electronically. Obviously, to the extent you can use the cloud to protect things or back things up, a really important thing to do. But individuals get hit with ransomware right. just like businesses do. I mean, obviously, it's probably yeah. less of a benefit overall as compared to doing a school or a hospital or something like that. But, you know, people should be aware. That being said, um, I think this is a great opportunity to ask you, since you mentioned the idea of trends, What's going on? What what kinds of things are we going to be seeing over the next few years? Uh, AI, for instance, is that starting to play a role uh, on offense or defense? Uh, what do you think? I think yes is the answer. I think AI. I think it's um unquestionable. We we uh, through a number of podcasts that I've I've done, it always tends to speak about AI. We we've looked and we we have a lot of people that are very active in the denial of service attack provisions where they're preventing them. They talk about how sophisticated denial attacks are becoming um, and their ability to use AI to try and block the different elements to which the attacks are coming in. And, and so I think, I think things around that are definitely going to um, continue to evolve, but I think it's still going to be quite slow. I think that our, one of the things that we're starting to see more of are very, very large, systemic losses and we're all looking at our systemic loss model so the when you think about 
how many people, for example, a, a good example of systemic loss is how many people are particularly using a, a particular application. So when you look at some of the recent Microsoft um, events, how many of our insureds, we were, we were speaking with a, one of our uh, forensic lawyers today, and over the weekend he had 120 new claims come into him because of the systemic nature of that um, loss. So what happens is that I think businesses, as we've moved into the cloud and continue to do so, I think that over the the coming years, we're going to see more of single events having a ripple effect like a, a pebble in a pond. And, when we, and we talk more about corporations, but it does happen to consumers. I think that, that as, a, as a corporation, you're so vulnerable by default if you put your environment into the hands of others, but you're forced to do it through the economies of scale and the benefits that it brings you. So it's, it's a, it's a very much a double-edged sword, but I think we're definitely going to see um, more of that. I think that's definitely going to be uh, a lot more um, frequent. And I think it's only going to get, get bigger. Um, and, and so I think it, it's more a, a lot to do around systemic loss. I don't think, I think ransomware uh, will continue. Um, but I, I'm hopeful now that we're going to start sealing a tailing off, a bit like um, the vaccination. You know, you have your, your spike of where it's just free reign, and now we're all starting to get the vaccinations. And you know, there's been some some losses along the way, but we, we're starting to try and um, recover and build and move forward with it because it actually, with the ransomware peak, it got to a position where it wasn't sustainable. We're currently looking at the home a lot in the interconnected world that we're seeing. Uh, we know that device interconnected um, in, interconnected natures of devices is, is doubling year on year. And we have put a lot of time and effort into um, building and partnering with companies that can help us stabilize and secure the home perimeter just outside whatever's connected to kind of your, your Wi-Fi or your internal network. So I think they're, they're the types of areas that I think are going to uh, continue to, to be evolving quickly well and, and i think as it comes to the consumer and the internet of things specifically one of the big ideas there is the idea of education and being able to help them know this is why you should not just buy that cheapest device off of amazon but you should actually do some research and figure out whether or not this company is updating whether or not they're closing security flaws or whatever the case may be. Neil, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with us today. Definitely just scratch the surface. Well, this has been great. I suspect that uh, as we see some of these issues with Internet of Things roll out, there'll be an opportunity for us to talk again because uh, you know anybody's home is only as secure as their weakest Bluetooth connections. <laughs> no, that's right. And our product is, uh, yeah. is already taking great steps to, to secure people's homes we're only going to continue to, to build it out. But yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on. Oh, that's wonderful. We'll certainly check out uh, Cyberman 365. Is that correct now? That's right. That's right. All right. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. 
You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this podcast. So please leave us a five-star rating and review. We appreciate having you here and we'll look forward to seeing you on our live show on Monday.